0: Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others the way Jesus loved us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen. In. Regardless of who you are, you are welcome here. For more information check out our website at mbkumc.com Good morning everyone good morning it's very wonderful everyone here this morning. it's the—it's uh, the, it's such a nice day out, and I think I get really sad. To be honest, I think I get really sad every time uh, the sun is out because we could have been together, um, worshiping together. But uh, this is what is best for our congregation to be safe. So. Um, I hope you guys are doing well in the midst of this quarantine before we begin in our sermon um, I just want to um, I was looking at I don't I don't mean to always have prayer topics before uh, the sermon but I was looking into um, Instagram and something was brought up to my attention uh, maybe. Yesterday and then also today. Um, obviously, like it's been all over all of our feeds. The fact that yesterday was World Mental Health Awareness Day, and uh, as somebody who's like not really vocal about it, I know a lot of people around. A lot of people in my life are very vocal about it, but I'm not. I'm not one to be like hugely vocal about mental health issues, um, outside of what has already happened in my testimony. Um, but there was a, there was a post that I was looking at, um, that really led me to a time of like deep prayer about, um, how there are people that are still wrestling with mental health right now. People that are trying to get better, but fall over and, uh, people that are wrestling through their worth and their value, um, Single-handedly, one of the greatest temptations often to faith uh, is hopelessness. And as we scratch the surface a little bit about the hope that is in Christ Jesus this morning, I just want to take just a minute, a literal minute, to pray for those who are wrestling with mental health. Um, If it is your own self, uh, just praying for your own self. Uh, obviously it's not just praying for people who have mental health. Like, what do I pray for? Um, One thing that would be really good to pray for in your own life and in other people's lives is that the presence of God would be realized. Uh, I know that for me, the main thing that has led me to a point where I can speak about my mental health issues, um, be open and be an advocate for other people who are wrestling with mental health is um, the presence of God with us. Mental health is often a lifelong struggle, and yet God is present in our midst. And so, uh, if we can pray for people who might, you know, people who are in psychiatric wards right now, people who are um, trying to do rehabilita- rehabilitation or whatever it is that they're trying to do, whatever program it is that they're trying to do, residentials and whatnot, and have relapsed in their mental health issues. Um, people that are misunderstood or broken or hurting or those who might be you know caught up in their own uh, thoughts of suicide or whatever it may be if we can just take a minute to pray for them pray for yourself and uh, we'll move on with today's sermon on through our sermon series. Just one second. Uh, we're going to be going through, pressing on into our sermon series. One thing that stays exactly the same, whether or not it's in person or whatever is Acts. And so we are going to continue right through Acts 22. Um, Acts 22 we're picking up exactly the verse afterwards we 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 held up on a cliffhanger last week um and so we'll be going through acts 23 acts 22 verse 22 all the way through acts 23 verse 11 acts is after john before romans acts 22 22 all the way through acts 23 11 Acts 22, 22, all the way through Acts 23, 11. This is the word of God. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who is a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, What are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I am a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason for why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God and all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I do not know brothers that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. But the Pharisees acknowledge them all. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we know that you work for the good of those who have been called according to your purpose. We know, God, that you are in our midst. Father, I pray for every single person that is joining today. I pray for every single person who is here, who is not here. Lord, we pray for every single heart. God, obviously, this is really difficult for us to be doing online service. And it's really hard to stay connected to you in the midst of everything. Oh Lord, I pray that the presence of God would be made manifest this morning in our hearts, and our minds. Holy Spirit, we pray that we would trust in you. We pray that you would take us to the next level with you. God, may your presence be realized in every space of those who are hearing this message right now. God, that you would inhabit those spaces and that you would fill hearts. Jesus Help us to stay focused on you this morning. Help me, God, as I preach your word, that every single thing that leaves my mouth will only be based in you, God. Hide me behind your cross, that only you may be glorified and magnified. And God, receive glory. Receive glory amongst us as we worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Okay, today we are continuing through our sermon series through Paul before the tribune and before the council. If you guys remember last week, last week we talked about Paul being before being brought into Jerusalem in chains and how he was rejected by the very community. That was supposed to love him, that was supposed to accept him. The very community that he had grown up in, that he had been glorified in, was the very community that had shot him down. And so we're continuing through in that passage. We're continuing through. Today's sermon title is before, is, is, is called Paul Before the tribune and council, Paul, before the tribune and council, the main idea for today, for those of you guys who are taking notes are God's word as truth prevails over all manipulation and pragmatism and fanaticism. I'm going to say that one more time. God's word as truth prevails over all manipulation, pragmatism, And fanaticism. So we're at this point where Paul gave his testimony, right? Paul gives his testimony. His heart is breaking before the people that were supposed to love him. And it says in Acts 22, up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth. For he should not be allowed to live. And so they start. It's a thing where when they, when people get pissed at that time, you know, when people get pissed here, they throw up their middle fingers and they start cursing, and you know, we all throw hands and we're like, all right, you know, square up. And you know, we all get, it's all get, it, it gets real tight. And actually, that doesn't happen in New England. From, um, <laughs> but where I grew up. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure everybody here, I mean, I don't know what, I don't know what I, I, sorry, I don't know what, um, people got, no, everybody's really cordial out here, but, uh, where I grew up, you know, if you said something that wasn't right, you best believe somebody was going to smack you upside the head for it, right, at the very least. Uh, in this time period, what people did was they kicked dust into the air and they threw off their cloaks, and that was a, that was something to show their anger or their upset at the situation. Um, and so the Tribune has to pull Paul away from the Jewish crowd, the very community that had raised him, and the Tribune. Has to take him away and he orders that Paul be interrogated by flogging to better understand why exactly they're yelling at him. So the tribune has to order that of Paul. And as, you know, like as as an American, we can't fully understand this because we have laws in place, thank God, um, to stop this from happening in most places. Okay, I don't want to, never mind. Um, America sucks, so I'm not going to actually even say that because that does, that's not true. But in this time, when you were interrogated for something that you could potentially do wrong, you were flogged. Um, there was an interrogation by torture, uh, to get words out of the person about what they did wrong. And so the tribune orders this of Paul, thinking that he, well, he's just a Jew. You know, he's just somebody who's, um, incited a rebellion and a revolt, and so they're all mad at him. And so he orders this of Paul and as Paul is being strapped in by the Roman centurions or the police at the time, there's, he, as he gets strapped in by the guys, he says, is it lawful for you to flog a Roman citizen before that Roman citizen has been proven guilty? The centurion stops What the heck is this guy saying? And he runs over to the tribune or the tribune and he says, hey, this guy says he's a Roman citizen. The tribune then comes over to him. We look at the verses. The tribune then comes over to him and says, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And Paul says, yes. The tribune says, I bought this citizenship for a large sum. Paul says, but I am a citizen by birth. What does this mean? Why does the Tribune freak out at this? There are tiers to citizenship. There are tiers to citizenship where you can be either naturalized or you can be native born. And citizenship in Rome often was greater than a citizenship say in the United States of America. Citizenship in Rome actually spoke to status more than it spoke to whether or not you were a resident. So you can live in a Roman colony And you can live as a member of Rome. But if you are a citizen, that means that you had standing officially in government. And it was something that people paid for, it was something that people had to earn. And it was something that elevated your status. And there are two tiers of citizenship there's the type of citizenship you buy, and the type of citizenship that you're born into. The reason for the significance of this is the type of citizenship you buy means that you made enough money in your life to get there. But a citizenship that you're born into by birth means that you are born into a house of citizens. That is very key. It's like, I mean, even, even in America, we do have that distinction. For example, I have two older sisters. Um, their names are Amy and Amanda. And their last names are Slater. That's because they white. Um, I know the irony. Uh <laughs> knowing me. Anyway, uh, but I love my sisters. I love my sisters to death. They're half Korean, half white. We we share the same mother and we have different fathers. Um, and they're 10 and 12 years older than me. Now, Amy and Amanda, they, they, their name, their names are Amy and Amanda Slater. They are white. Um, But they were actually born in South Korea. So they had to be naturalized. Even though they white, they had to be naturalized. Me, I am, I am yellow. Um, I wish I was mixed. It'd be really nice. You know, growing up, y'all have to know what it's like to grow up with biracial sisters. You know, it really takes a huge hit to your self-esteem. Especially during the awkward middle school, high school days. Man. Like that's when my sisters bloomed and I was, I'm not gonna get into that. But yes, like it is quite, so say I. I wish I was bi- biracial, but I'm not. I'm 100% yellow. And um, I, on the other hand, I was born in New Jersey. I am born and raised in the States. I have not been to Korea once. I remember the first time I saw a South Korean passport because I was like, well into my teens, and I was trying not to freak out because I thought that all passports were blue. Um, <laughs> because that's how much of a noob I am when it comes to traveling outside the United States of America. And I am a natural born citizen. So one, one running joke that I used to have growing up with my sisters is that I could become president of the United States and they can't um, <laughs> because I am natural born. Now that means like next to nothing between the two of us. <laughs> Uh, between the three of us. But in, in Rome, that was a big, big deal. Because that means that locally, sure, locally, this guy ranks higher than Paul because this guy's in working for the government. But if you look at the general state of Rome, Paul has a superior citizenship status than the very guy who is flogging him. And that's going to play a huge factor. Say that gets into regional and, and more national authorities, it, it's going to it's going to be a big, big problem for the Tribune that he flogged this man before he knew beyond reasonable doubt that he was guilty. So the guy gets alarmed at his treatment of a superior citizen and orders him to be taken down immediately because man's is going to get in trouble. Uh, but obviously, this guy is still not aware of what the hell is going on with Paul and the Jews like nobody understands why and so the next day he takes a different route a more a more humane route the very next day after he stops Paul from getting flogged he takes Paul before the Sanhedrin which is the ruling body of the Jews and he says well, okay what the hell is going on so why are y'all yelling at me? and Paul's words immediately after he stands before the Sanhedrin is I have lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience before God Up to this day. I want to break down a little bit of this passage. A little bit of what Paul's words are. Because I think it's really important to delve into. In order to understand the hope that we have in Christ. And the full understanding of God's sovereignty in our lives. I have lived my life. Lived my life. That's right? Polythueste is the same word that has a derivative of politics. Traditionally it means... To walk in citizenship. To have a status of citizenship. But here it actually means conduct. So Paul was saying, I have conducted my life with a perfectly clear conscience. Which is, Paul's not saying that he, ha- he is morally upright. But he's saying that his conscience is clear before God. With a perfectly clear conscience before God up to this day and paul is taking this temporal clause to bring it up to into the present. It's like a I've explained this before, but do you do y'all remember? I know some of us are too old to remember this fully, but do you guys remember vectors? There are line segments, there are lines and then there are rays. I know, we are going into social studies and math and politics, I know, it's all over the place today. But there are line segments, there are lines, and there are rays. The difference between a line segment and a line is that there are fixed points to where this line begins and ends versus lines go on forever, and rays have a fixed point in one end and a line that goes forever and ever and ever and ever. That's a vector, right? Now, Paul's statement is a ray where it begins in the beginning of his life, and it continues into the present day. So Paul is saying, I have conducted my life with a clear conscience before God up until now. That my whole life, I have lived my whole life. This is very striking. And although you might not be able to see the points of how these two things align, I still want to go into this a little bit to provide solid context. What Paul is in essence, what the situation is in essence is if Paul was like on Forbes, 30 under 30, and then he gave up his entire inheritance to do missions in Myanmar. Like what Paul is in essence, is not to be taken lightly because this is a real guy. This man is just a real man. And this man was legitimately at the top of the top of the top. Natural native born Roman citizen, a Pharisee born of Pharisees. Pharisees are at the top of the rulers. Learn under the best guy, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and the tribe of Benjamin, and born on the most Hebrew day, even. Man was like top 30 under 30. He was really high up there and really young. And he gives up everything because God says, I've called you to preach to the Gentiles. He leaves all that behind to do his ministry. And it's only until he God calls him to do ministry back in his own hometown, where all of that testimony comes to light. Heck, even the local authorities cannot flog him if they wanted to because he is more high he is more highly ranked than them. It's like if Boston police like arrests you and then goes, "Oh my God, you're some government official." You. You are some government officials. You're the attorney general's child. I cannot flog you if I wanted to. That's like the kind of situation he's in right now. Paul is a whole deal, he is a big deal. <laughs> a big deal. Um. And that's, that's really ki- critical to mention because even his enemies can't do with him as they want. So that's one thing. And then there are these, there are Paul's words. I have lived my life with a perfectly clear conscience before God up to this day. That is a bold statement. That is a bold statement. How many of y'all can say that? I have lived my whole life. With a clear conscience. Up until this day. Can you say that? I can't say that. I did not. I did not. I even Thank you Jesus for saving my life. But I did not always have a clear conscience. There are definitely moments in my life. Where I didn't know what a clear conscience was. Um. And if you really consider Paul's life. And his testimony. You might be able to wrestle with. Even the fact that Paul's life wasn't good. You're, you might be thinking right now, wait, 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 Jane. Hold up. We got to take a step back for a second. Because in Acts, I believe Paul was killing Christians. Paul's life wasn't good. Didn't he kill and persecute Christians? I want to make a clear distinction before we move on into the rest of this passage. Paul here is not confessing righteousness. He's confessing conformity to the will of God. Paul is not saying that he was perfect. He's not even claiming that. He says, before God, my conscience is clear. Why? Have y'all killed somebody in your life? Who here can say, I am a murderer indeed. I have killed somebody in my life. Maybe some of you, maybe some person on the internet or whatever who comes across this sermon, you might have that experience and I ache with you in that, but I don't, I don't know what it's like to have somebody lose their life as a result of my actions. And so like, I I don't know, I just don't know what that level of, of sin really feels like but Paul's experienced that and he says he has a clear conscience before God. So that's, those are the two things, those are the two contextual parts, and upon this, upon hearing Paul's statement about how he is clear before God, Ananias goes, strike his mouth. When you strike somebody's mouth, you're shaming them for what they said, right? And In response to Ananias ordering to strike his mouth, Paul goes, you whitewashed wall. I don't know, y'all. I don't even, yo, like right off the bat, you're like, ooh, I don't even know what that means. But ooh, you know what I mean? Like a whitewashed wall. Jesus Christ. That's actually a reference to Ezekiel. Because in Ezekiel, Ezekiel likens false prophets to a wall that is whitewashed. Because a wall that is washed with white looks solid but will fall. Paul is saying that this Ananias guy, the high priest of Jerusalem, is deceptive. And they go, you dare insult the high priest? And he goes, no, 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 no. I apologize. I didn't know. And he actually quotes the law for them to actually understand that he is one of them. Paul appeals to who he is. And then he calls out, brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. This causes a fight. At this point, guys, I want you guys to not listen to this sermon to hear, oh, what can I glean from this passage? But I want you guys to be able to digest this this story with me as though it was your next door neighbor. Okay? I'm telling you guys this story, and I want you guys to really take in this story and this narrative for what it is. So Paul gets captured. He the tribe realizes this guy is more upstanding than him. Then he gets caught. He goes to the Sanhedrin, and then before the Sanhedrin, he says, "I have a clear conscience before God." And then I try to strike him on the mouth. He goes, "You whitewashed wall." They go, "He's the high priest." He goes, "I apologize." And then, <laughs> and then he calls out. He goes, "Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is respect with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial." And this causes a big fight, a huge fight. Sadduce- this is because Sadducees and Pharisees, who are two different, it's like, they're two different types of teachers of the law and rulers and leaders in the nation state of Jerusalem, or the colony of Jerusalem. And they're separated not just by status, but theological belief. Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, but Pharisees do. And Pharisees rank higher than Sadducees. The difference between Sadducees and Pharisees, you can consider it like the House of Representatives versus the Senate. They function differently, they have different roles, they're a part of the ruling body, but they are elected differently and they do different things and their jurisdiction is over different things, right? House of Representatives is more personal, it's more the people. And the Senate is, is, is more by region in, within um, with states. There are usually one to two senators per state, correct me if I'm wrong, senators per state. Um, so they function on different rules. And so the Sadducees they don't believe that anybody could be resurrected from the dead, but the Pharisees believe in it. And so it starts causes it's, it causes an uproar because the Pharisees are like, "Oh, y'all one of us, you one of us," and he start they start defending Paul. And then the Sadducees are like, "No, there is no resurrection." They start fighting against Paul. And so we see the derailment of the highest people in the land. They're like, "All right, let's throw hands." They start taking off their shirt. They're like, alright, you, you yelling at me? I'm yelling at you! Right? It, it, it began with this, with this trial for, for Paul, but then it ends up becoming a fight of theological discussion. The word that is used for this exchange is a dispute, and that word is the same word as an uprising or revolt. Interestingly enough, it's not necessarily Paul's testimony, but his status as Pharisee that really leads the nation state of Jerusalem to unravel. Um, and they start, they, they start getting their division starts really getting highlighted. And it gets bad. It's a clamor. It gets a loud uproar, and then it gets violent. I don't know about y'all, but the idea of a Sanhedrin meeting, getting violent is so funny to me because you gotta understand those robes are heavy. So they're like picking up them. You know what I mean? For it to get violent. You know what I mean? I mean like 2000 years ago and today people fight the same. It's just all throwing hands, you know what I'm saying? So it's like people like picking up them robes. They don't wear no pants. It's all skirts. Picking up them robes, like up, yeah, well, you know? Very, very interesting stuff. Uh, but there's this huge uproar that happens on their own. <laughs> on their own. And um, the Roman government, the Roman governor has to pull him out. <laughs> so that he doesn't get ripped up. <laughs> he literally says in scripture, Y'all gotta understand, scripture is very, very interesting. It dead says, it dead says, when the dissension became violent, the tribute afraid that Paul will be torn to pieces. (laughs) Y'all, over the resurrection, y'all. I mean, I am a, I am a, I am a, I am a gung ho pastor for Jesus Christ. But it is hard to rip up a human body over the resurrection. I mean, like, I will. But I won't, you know what I'm saying? Like, there's no need to get to that point. Like, we can talk with words. Um, but yeah, they were, they was about to rip up Paul. So he had to get pulled out. And, and then the story ends with just one statement from the Lord. One encouragement from God. And then one, one reveal of what God is doing. And the Lord says, Be courageous. It's actually one word. And that word, is. it means to be firm or resolute in the face of danger or adverse circumstances. Now, we hear pastors talk over and over and over again about how God has a plan for you in all things. What the enemy uses for evil, the Lord will turn for good. Amen. Right? And we... We hear people talk about this over and over again. And it's true. I don't I don't mean to make light of that or mock it even because that is truly how God is. But it's sometimes hard for us to wrestle with the fact that God is orchestrating a hard situation for glory. We as Christians, we have a hard time with that. We have a hard time with the fact that God orchestrates adverse circumstances for good not just we like to think in in order for us to be okay with god we like to think that god is still in the midst moving things for good it's hard for us to understand that god is in full control and it it gets to the point where it, it really confuses us well god why why do we suffer why do you let us suffer Even the idea that God might let us suffer is hard. But here we see that God is there moving in the midst. He has a positive plan in the midst of everything. You might ask, Jane, why does God put Paul in danger to do his will? Isn't that selfish of God? To that, I I I wanna I wanna take a little bit of time to question why we think that way. The first the first answer that I have to that very difficult question, why does God put Paul in danger, is I don't know. I don't know because I don't know God's mind. I am limited and there's no way I can understand everything that He's doing. So the short answer is I don't know. But I think there's something more that we can delve into. Why do you think it's selfish of God to put Paul in danger? Why do you think it's selfish of God to put Paul in danger? Because pain hurts. The reason why you think it's selfish of God to put Paul in danger, it's because number one, you're the only way that you can have that kind of understanding of suffering is if you view God to be a puppeteer using us as an instrument or a means for his end and your negative understanding of pain because we in our own lives have experienced suffering and pain or watched the suffering and pain of other people, we've come to our own conclusions, and to some extent, we fear it. One of the greatest reasons why people fear dying is because of the pain. Oftentimes, people fear extreme pain. And there's this assumption that God puppeteers us to get his way. So those two implicit premises are important to get to the understanding that God is selfish for bringing suffering. But I want to challenge, not, I can't change your mind, but I want to challenge and push up against that and make you uncomfortable a little bit. Because if it is truly the case, that God was using us as instruments for his end, he would not have died. I'm going to say that one more time. If God would only use us to receive glory for himself, you would have to completely ignore the fact that Jesus died physically and spiritually, experienced separation from another part of his being, and was tortured brutally. And that he was born just for the sake of dying. You have to understand, Jesus was born for the sake of fulfilling the Old Testament and what his death. He died from the moment he began his life. The death sentence was set. and in the death of jesus christ both those notions are challenged because number one why would jesus die for you if you're a puppet if you mean nothing to god why would jesus die for you there's a disconnect there and that disconnect is something you got to wrestle Well God, why do you put me through suffering? Jesus suffered for you. And the second thing is that pain is something to be avoided. Jesus went through the most gruesome pain. It needed to be the most painful way even. Crucifixion as a capital as a form of capital punishment is one of the most inhumane ways to die. Because unlike Although Jesus was flogged, one less flog than people normally die for, 40 flogs and you died. Jesus was flogged 39 times, so his flesh was hanging off of him. Even though he was bleeding out, the main way he died is not by bleeding out, but is by asphyxiation. He 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 suffocated. You know, his shoulders were dislocated as he hung. Hands and feet nailed onto wood one of the most excruciating forms of punishment to ever exist in human history. Jesus could have been born. You have to understand, God could have been born now. Now you get get injected. And even that is cruel and unusual by some people, by some minority dissents, which I I personally agree with. I I don't want to get into that right now, but... Um, that's but Jesus chose the time of the crucifixion Romans 5 6 says for even a good person one might dare to die Romans 5 8 says but God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.5 5 says, while we were still so weak, God died for the ungodly. So even though you're uncomfortable with the fact that Paul suffered in this way, the very death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in and of itself pushes up against our views of suffering in a very uncomfortable way. The short answer is, I don't know, but what I do know is that the Christian life was not meant to be without suffering. I also want to question, why do you hate suffering so much? Why do you hate suffering so much? Because it hurts. And to some extent, in all of our lives, we want to prosper. We want to live a good life. Right? I'm not, I'm not shaving that. I, I, I don't want to, you know? <laughs> I also want to live a good life. But what you consider to be a good life and what God considers to be glory is very different. For us, a good life is a house, a family, healing, confidence, self-esteem, community, growth, thriving, Comfort, stability. But for God, glory is... God's kingdom saved. Before you question why God allows Paul to suffer like that, question the very framework with which you are thinking. You see, Paul himself, the very person who's suffering, would disagree with you. If you think, if you, if you wrestle with this, and if you might think, with good reason, that God is being selfish, you've got to understand that Paul himself would disagree with you. because Jesus suffered so that we can have hope. He died while we were weak to give us peace and hope. And Paul would say, you might want comfort, but I have hope. What do you hope for? Paul experiences the pragmatism of torture The manipulation of Ananias, the fanaticism of Jews, going so far as to rip him apart for a cause they barely understand. But Paul, the charge that is given to God by Paul is to be courageous. God doesn't comfort him. He doesn't rescue him. He confronts Paul with courage. Why? What does Paul have to be courageous for? It's because Paul has hope. Romans 5.3 says, Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. God, we can rejoice in the very things that come our way. In our trials, in our adverse circumstances, we can rejoice. Because we have hope. And hope does not put us to shame. I don't want to quote Prince of Egypt here. But Moses, when, 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 when the Israelites are like to Moses, like, Pharaoh's going to increase our wages more and he's going to increase our workload more and, and, and we, have, we have nothing. We can't do anything against this oppression. Moses says, yes, Pharaoh can increase Your workload. He can take away your homes. He can take away your family. He can take away everything you have. He can even take away your life. But what he can't take away is your faith. It's a very big turning point for Moses' leadership in that movie. And I borrow his words, the cartoon Moses' words, I borrow it, to bring light to something about hope. We live in perilous times Whether or not you feel like you're in danger. The world, as we know it, is on the brink of another crossroad. And things are literally burning down to the ground, right? But where do you stand in your life? Do you fear suffering? Do you conform to the world? If you do these two things, you're definitely going to think that God is evil for bringing suffering onto your life. And I'm not going to be able to change your mind. Are you bitter at God for your circumstances? If you are bitter or if you are hurt, I don't blame you. In fact, I've been through more I mean for those of you guys who Have me on Instagram I post about it fairly frequently I think I posted something this morning I've been through Things that I can't even Try to explain From a very very early age And I don't I try not to Talk about them Because I'm still too young For those hurts to be past me and for those of you guys who might be bitter at God for what you're going through, I, I relate to you. If you've ever been shamed, if you've ever been cast aside, if you've ever been broken by the brokenness of life. But we see Paul miraculously being saved. In these circumstances. He almost gets flogged. He's a Roman citizen. He gets put before the Sanhedrin. He's a Pharisee. And then they start fighting each other. And it's hard to understand. Why God would do this to somebody. But the answer. To a glimpse of that perspective. Is in the hope of Paul. See, Paul doesn't hope to get better. Paul doesn't hope for all the suffering to cease. Paul doesn't even hope for all of Jerusalem to know God. Paul's hope is in a person. Paul's endurance, his perseverance, is in a person. A person that showed him love first. A person that loves him, even as he killed off Christians. Paul's hope is in Jesus. Paul's hope is Jesus. His peace is Christ. Now that might be something that is impossible for us to imagine. But it's not so far off if you really think about it. Because just as Paul has Christ, so do we. Are your circumstances flipping out? Are you stuck in a situation that you don't know how to get past? Are you navigating uncharted waters? Are you at a crossroads yourself? Is your life flipping upside down? Or maybe your life is still. Are you confused about your future? Are you confused about where you're going? Where is your hope? In a family, a house, salary, stability, security, you do have all that you need right now to get through this season. You have it. People will fade. Glory in this world will fade. Fame will fade. Money will fade. Even people who are at the top of the social strata, even on Instagram and Facebook, give them five years. Five years and top influencers fade away. But Jesus is a rock that will never get eroded. And to our adverse circumstances, to our confusion as to why God would let this happen in our lives, to our disarray, God's call is to take courage. Just as it was to Joshua, just as it was to Paul, God's courage for you today is to not be dismayed, to take courage. For what? I am with you. I am with you. The promise of the presence of God. Take courage and be Christian in this time. Don't compromise your faith for the world. Don't compromise your faith for your friends. Your friends are not, I I mean, if you love them, I love them, but your friends are not a good enough reason to compromise your identity. nor are any of your social media accounts or even your major those things are not good enough things to compromise your identity there's no point in building a 50 year pedestal for what what about the next 500 what are you going to do with that you're going to put all your bet all your eggs in one basket for 50 years When your soul will live on for 50,000? Think about it. I pray that we can confess who Jesus is in our lives this morning. I pray that we can take courage, break our paradigm, and dare to have hope in a person. Dare to believe that God is present in our sufferings. And that he is in the process of doing something. Because God is in the process of doing something for you. And last but not least, I just want to debunk something before we go into prayer. And that's that you need to sacrifice yourself. Yes, sometimes the Christian life means that you will suffer. And sometimes you will sacrifice your life for God. But God's not asking for us for, just for the sake of sacrifice. God's not asking for Paul to die here. God's not asking Paul to jump into flames. Don't think that sacrifice is the main thing that God wants from you. And remember Saul. Saul sacrificed to God without obeying. And what does Samuel say to him? And this is the defining moment where Paul gets dethroned spiritually, although he gets to stay on that throne for another 22 years before David comes. To obey is better than sacrifice. God's not asking for your sacrifice. Oh, but Jane. So then, if if Jesus if Jesus is my hope, does that mean that I give up my money and I give up my future and I give if those things are keeping like if those things are keeping you from even seeing God, it is worth questioning what the heck they are in your life. Because you're putting a lot at stake for things that will fade. But God isn't asking for Paul's sacrifice first. He's asking for Paul's obedience. And even before that, he's asking for Paul's heart. Before Paul gives anything up, what Jesus wants is Paul. So throw away that I need to sacrifice for God. No, you need to come before God. God, why do I suffer? Be suspicious of even the ways that you view suffering. And I leave us with this one more time. God died for the weak. He died for the ungodly. And I read Romans 5, 3 to 5 one more time. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Take courage. Not because your success is on the other side, but because God is. And not just on the other side, because God is with you as you walk through your valley. Tumultuous circumstances will come that you don't understand, but God is with you in the valley. Don't push God away. Yes, you might be going through things that I don't know. And they might be painful, and I'm not making light of that at all. But don't push God away. Come to him this morning. Would you join me in praying? What... Where do you stand in your life? Do you fear suffering? Do you conform to the world? Are you bitter at God for your circumstances? Not to quote Prince of Egypt again, but look at your life through heaven's eyes. Look at your life through heaven's eyes. What do you fear right now? What do you fear right now? What do you conform to? Where are you bitter about your circumstances? Where are you burning out? Would we find rest in God this morning? Come to a God that suffered for us. Find shelter in him and trust him and believe him. When he says, I am with you, would that be our strength? Would that be our courage? Would that be our hope? You join me from wherever you are listening we hope you are blessed by this week's message for more information check out our website at mbkumc.com